your host, Billy Dean Shoemate III, and welcome back to Strange Places. This is episode 82. Crazy. This podcast is brought to you by Spotify and DistroKid. So we've done a lot of ghostly things on this show. We've dove in, we, we dove into what potentially ghosts may be. And I'm not going to rehash that kind of stuff, but I do need to make it a point to kind of reiterate, you know, when we do stuff like this, what I believe ghostly things to be, that's going to come up a lot, right? And as a preface to what we're going to talk about, I kind of feel the need to say that again. I do think there is a legitimate phenomenon here. There is something going on, but I think... From what I've seen, the evidence, using my common sense, right? I think what we see as ghosts isn't really the departed in the real sense. I'm unable to explain intelligent hauntings right now. (laughs) But maybe these are just... See, what I think paranormal activity is, what I think ghosts are, I think that time is not linear. This is all just kind of happening at the same time, just at different wavelengths, at different... What's the word I'm looking for? At different frequencies. I think when we catch a glimpse of a ghost, the reason why we always kind of see them going through the motions that they were in life is because they are. And we're just seeing glimpses of that. We're seeing it as it's happening. Maybe the weird paranormal stuff that they encountered back in the day, they were catching glimpses of us. I mean, who knows? Intelligent hauntings, maybe those are just happening with... People like kind of like we have now who are just aware, you know, that this is happening and can kind of reach out with their minds or their voices or in some cases even physically. I don't know. I might be entirely wrong. But with that said, I do think that quote unquote ghosts, paranormal activity like this is something very legitimate. Is this one of these? Let me tell you a story, huh? Aside perhaps from nurses, there can be no group of professionals that garners as much respect, at least from me, as firefighters. It's well-deserved. These are heroes, putting their lives on the line to save others and protect property, stepping in where, you know, anybody would be terrified to tread. I think it takes a special kind of person to rush to you know run into a raging inferno when everyone else is running the opposite direction. Firefighters do this every day of their lives and a lot of the time they're volunteering to do this. Francis Levy or Francis Levy I've heard. Let's just uh, just for the sake of brevity let's just call him Francis Levy. That's the one that I've heard the most common. It was he was one individual who in my mind typified this ethos a lovable, big bear of a guy. (laughs) Francis was a dedicated member of the Chicago Fire Department way back in the 1920s. Likeable, friendly, outgoing. He was a veteran fireman, respected by his peers for his professionalism, his cool head under pressure, and especially his bravery. Francis had been tested many times over the course of his career. He had never been found wanting of respect. I'll just put it that way. But in the spring of 1924, something was clearly wrong 
with Francis Levy. The ready smile that he usually wore was gone. In its place was a creased brow, a surly countenance, troubled demeanor. He was morose, withdrawn. His colleagues were worried about him, but they were reluctant to pry. You know, they figured, well, probably the guy has troubles at home, which was none of their damn business, you know, putting it frankly. Francis would speak about it if and when he was ready. Got to remember, this is 1920s. These are firefighters on top of that. These are manly men. These are old school men. You know what I mean? They didn't talk about feelings and stuff like that. Whether it's right or wrong, indifferent, whether it's, uh, you know, the thing to do or not, you still got to take into consideration when this was and who this was. However, on the morning of April 18th, 1924, the men of Engine 107 did find cause to intervene. That morning had been spent maintaining the firehouse and Francis had always had done more than his share of work. It was while washing a window that he suddenly slumped against the glass, placing the flat of his palm against the pane to steady himself. He was breathing heavily. It appeared to his colleagues that he might be having a heart attack. They rushed to his assistance, but Francis waved them off, saying that everything was fine. He didn't look fine. According to them, all the color had drained from his face. He was visibly shaking, clammy, sweaty. When the other firefighters pressed him on the issue, he let out a long sigh and told them what he'd been, you know, what had been ailing him for the past few days. He said he was having premonitions of his impending death. And today, that feeling of doom was stronger than ever, he said. Today is my last day on earth, he told them, and I quote, I will not see another one. And a lot of guys heard this. Everybody at the station. To Francis Levy's colleagues, this admission was both a relief and a worry at the same time. Post-traumatic stress disorder, as you know, was not yet a recognized condition in that era, but they'd seen this often enough. Francis was suffering a panic attack, something that's quite common in individuals who are frequently placed in life and death situations. In any case, they had no time to think about it now. The station alarm was going off. A fire had been called in. Current Hall, it's a four-story commercial building across town, was on fire. Well-rehearsed routines kicked in. The firemen geared up, mounted their trucks, and left the station, sirens wailing. Francis Levy was among them. By the time the firefighters arrived on the scene, the flames had already taken hold. The whole building was ablaze, smoke billowing from every window. Several people were trapped on the upper floors, with their oxygen being rapidly depleted. Time was definitely against them. The firefighters got to work immediately. Several of them entered at ground level, while others ran up ladders and started bringing people out. Meanwhile, hoses were hooked up, jets of water were directed at the flames. The operation, to them, was textbook. You know, the crisis was being brought rapidly under control. But this was a fire with, from what I saw, pretty unusual properties. See, firefighters noticed flames that seemed to be flowing down the stairs, almost like molten lava, like a sea of fire. 
They noted that the blaze did not have a particular point of ignition, but several. Flames leapt at them from all directions, and several explosions rocked the building, physically shook it. The fire was getting away from them. It was spreading faster than they'd expected. Still, these brave men struggled through the hellscape of smoke and flame, their progress hampered by the lack of what we would consider modern, modern breathing equipment. As you can imagine, back then, firefighting was way more of a dangerous occupation. Many were still inside when the roof eventually collapsed. Then the wall started caving in, bringing down smoldering rubble on those inside the doomed building. By now, a call had gone out for reinforcements. See, every firefighter in the city was racing like hell toward this. The banshee, you know, of approaching sirens filled the air in every part of the city. I mean, this was a major deal once it got to that point. It is due to the immense credit, though, of the Chicago Fire Department that only one civilian life was lost during the catastrophe. Amazing. The toll for the department was not as good. Nine. Nine firefighters were dead. Six from engine 12, two from five, and a single man from engine 107. You want to know who that was? Yeah, you guessed it. Francis Levy. His premonition of his own death turned out to be accurate. An investigation would later prove that the fire was deliberately set by the owners of a sporting goods store on the lower floors of the buildings. The reason why they did that, this actually took a little bit to research <laughs> It was, uh, it's not mentioned a lot, but I eventually kind of found why. Their intention, as far as what I can gather, was to collect on a $32,000 insurance policy that they had. Instead, they'd exacted a toll of 10 lives. The reason the fire had acted so strangely and spread so fast was also revealed. The arsonists had used wood alcohol as an accelerant, pouring out a liberal amount, of the highly volatile liquid in various locations throughout the building. They would be convicted of arson and murder, but this was of little consolation to the families of the dead. In the case of Francis Levy, the bereaved included a wife and two little kids. This was also a tragedy for the Chicago Fire Department, of course, you know. Nine firefighters were dead. The mood in the firehouse across the city was morose. At the station where Francis Levy had been based, the men, I guess, assuaged their sorrow by getting back to work. They picked up on the maintenance tests that they'd already been performing when they were called out to Curran Hall. It was then that one of them noticed the handprint. This handprint appeared to be marked in soot on a window pane, the same pain that Francis Levy had been cleaning when he'd revealed his premonition of his own impending death. Yeah. The firefighter tried to wipe it away, then applied a bit more elbow grease when the mark refused to be shifted. After a while, the man called some of his colleagues who also tried without success to wipe away the stain. Not even scraping it with a knife would shift it nor the application of powerful cleaning chemicals. If anything, these efforts made the handprint clearer, which is crazy. It started out as a faint smudge. Now you could make out the whirls and creases of the palm. 
You could make out the damn fingerprints. Pretty eerie. With all efforts to remove the handprint from the window completely unsuccessful, the men of Engine 107 finally decided to leave it where it stood as a memorial to their fallen friend and colleague, Francis Levy. It would remain there for the next 20 years, attracting hordes of curiosity seekers to view its ghostly outline. But then, on April 18, 1944, a careless paper boy sent a newspaper hurtling through the window, breaking the glass and shattering the, the handprint into a gazillion pieces. Francis Levy's memorial lasted exactly 20 years. And no, I'm not shitting you. The window that held this handprint was broken 20 years to the day that he'd passed. That's kind of odd. The story of Francis Levy's ghostly handprint is a popular tale in Chicago. I know some of those old Chicago boys and they remember it. Most I've talked to a few of them actually. Because in gearing up for this story, I had to ask a couple of uh, some of the older cats that I know that grew up in Chicago. Maybe their daddies told them or, you know, whatever. And yeah, a couple of them, they knew the gist of it. Pretty, pretty crazy. Most consider it an urban legend. And that's perhaps, according to some, the most likely explanation. However, if it's nothing more than folklore, it's backed up by some pretty inarguable stuff. I mean, we know for certain that there was a firefighter named Francis Levy. We know that he died in the current hall blaze. He is recognized for a sacrifice at the Chicago Firemen's Memorial. Actually, his badge is on display at the Chicago Fire Training Academy, attesting to those facts at least. We know also that the handprint was real. It was photographed and appeared in the January 1939 issue of Fire magazine alongside a story of the phenomenon. None of these facts is in dispute. Period. Period. This stuff is researchable. I guess it's only when we start exploring the paranormal aspects of the case that naturally things they get a little murky. Was this really the imprint of Francis Levy's hand? somehow etched into the glass as a memorial to his tragic passing? Or might there be a simpler, more rational explanation? One theory is that the mark was made by Levy's colleagues in the immediate aftermath of his death. Probably it was imprinted in paint and intended to be a temporary memorial. However, once word began to spread and the legend of the ghost print took hold, the firefighters decided to leave it there, realizing that it would keep Levy's legacy alive. Now, the problem with this theory is that the handprint was viewed by thousands of people over the years. Surely someone would have called out such an obvious fraud. Nobody did. Not one. Even publications at the time who went out to purposely smear and, dis and debunk this kind of stuff. Not even from them. That's wild to me. That's just... That alone blows my mind. Surely somebody, you know, would have called out a fraud. Nobody did. Not even the photographer who snapped it for Fire Magazine. That figure shows the clear imprint of a palm and four fingers. It does not appear to have been painted on the glass according to, like I said, 1920, shitty photograph. But it doesn't appear to be painted. How was this thing made? 
I guess without having the original pain to examine, that question is impossible to answer. But humor me. <laughs> Let's assume that this was a genuine paranormal phenomenon, okay? What then? First, we'd have to come up with a rational explanation of how the handprint came to be etched on the glass in the first place. By what means was this possible? Might Francis Levy's overtaxed nervous system generated in excess heat, some kind of weird chemical electricity akin to what's been suggested in cases of, you know, spontaneous human combustion? Might this have scored the glass somehow? We can't say. And does the handprint have any significance beyond the physical? Was Francis Levy sending us a message? Was he bidding all of us farewell? We don't know and likely never will. It's another one of those mysteries that uh, kind of begs you to unravel it. Which I really looked into it. Now, sticking with strange places and what we do, <laughs> I save a lot of the... <laughs> there was a high school teacher of mine that actually called it the Bing Bang Bongo method of uh, <laughs> probably self created but you know, of, of researching the bing is you know just figuring out the the facts being able to hold your own in casual conversation with it knowing the gist of it the bang is really doing your research being able to hold your own and you know being able as he put it being able to sniff out bullshit when it comes wafting in the bongo the bongo is taking that extra step, doing a little bit of detective work. And whenever I <laughs> do this podcast, I always want to say that term, bing, bang, bongo, but you guys would probably think I'm absolutely insane. So let's go for the bongo. And I want to really, really look at this photo. Uh, Francis Levy and print. Okay. I really, really want to get a good look at this thing because maybe the last time I looked at this photo, it was a lower resolution resolution image. Yeah, this is a really shitty photograph. I know that this is the 1920s. You're not going to get anything major out of it. I see a handprint, yeah. It's darker than the rest of the glass. It, what gets me is... Hmm. Well, a lot of people are basing... Oh, there's a picture of the broken window. That's actually kind of sad to look at. Ah, a damn paper boy. Uh, there is a handprint. But the photograph is so not good <laughs> that I don't understand why people are saying, oh, it doesn't look painted. You can't say it's painted. You can't say it's this or that. How the hell can you even tell it's anything? I mean, if you didn't tell somebody that there was a ghostly handprint on that glass, it would take him about, you know, a few full solid minutes to realize that there's something kind of off about this photo. Seriously. I mean, it's that bad a picture. Uh, here's a better version of it. See, this is what I'm, <laughs> you can uh, have your opinions about AI and all that stuff. I have mine, especially as a painter. Yeah. But, there's one thing that I hope that AI does in the future that we can take really old photographs like this and rebuild them, <clears throat> you know, in either like 3D or a higher definition or what I mean, really, really rebuild these photos. That would be cool. 
I'm hoping AI gets to that point. It's going to make my job a lot more interesting. But this is the, here's a photo of um, Levy's funeral. See, this is kind of a double whammy here because we're dealing with not only something paranormal, possibly, but we're dealing with someone who had a premonition that they were going to die before they did, and they were correct. I'm willing to bet, I'll put a paycheck on it, that we're going to be tackling a lot of stories regarding, I'm, I'm surprised we haven't yet, but we're going to be tackling a lot of stories on this podcast that have to deal with premonitions. People who have visions of a plane crashing before they go on. Yeah, as many <laughs> plane crashes, believe it or not, I didn't believe it for a time until I actually saw a visual representation of this in real time. They say that plane crashes are an exceptionally rare occurrence. Granted, that's all you hear about. You don't hear in the news about the successful flights. You only hear about the crash and burn ones. Until somebody showed me this website where you can look at all of the airliners that are currently in, you know, airplanes that are currently in flight, the ones the government will let you see anyway. It's unreal. I look at this and I'm like, how do all these planes not crash into each other? Like, this is insane. How do they keep track of all these planes flying around? It's downright astonishing how many airplanes in, just in this country are in the air right now. It's, it's crazy. Where was I going with this? <laughs> you know, people say it's very, you know, it's very rare that a plane crash will occur. Oh, that's what I was talking about. Yeah. <laughs> and it is. I want to see if I can pull up some uh, statistics here. Okay. So, okay, check this out. This will freak you out. At any given time, there's an average of 9,728 planes, the ones that we know about, carrying 1,270,406 passengers in the sky at any given time. And guess what? That's just in the fucking U.S. This website freaked me out. So, yeah. I mean, it, if you consider that, 9,278 every day, 1.2 million people in the air just in the U.S. And this is daily. Yeah, plane crashes are pretty damn rare. So if you ever don't want to believe the jargon of, oh, this is the safest way to travel, I'm starting to believe that, yeah, they're actually right. Now, if I were to have some kind of mechanical failure, or if I were to have some kind of an accident or collision or whatever, I would much rather have it on the ground than being in a pressurized sardine can going 500 miles an hour. Just saying. But we're going to deal with premonitions, people who dream that the plane is going to crash or that the boat is going to capsize or that they're going to die. I think it's happened enough throughout history and even in the modern era. I think it's happened enough to where it at least merits some kind of serious look. I never do this on the show, but as far as the premonition thing, I think... We don't know enough. We haven't studied enough about premonitions yet to really come to a conclusion there. We haven't really studied them on this podcast before. And this one, honestly, 
as far as just the premonition itself phenomena goes, there's not a lot of meat here. There's not a lot to study. I think the only way to really study premonitions, we might have to do an episode on, you know, I might have to grab a handful of them, just the most striking ones, so we could study the phenomenon in mass. Because something like a premonition, there's not going to be any evidence for that. You know, we have to study a bunch of them at one time and develop something. It is a misconception that we only use 10% of our brains. See, how the misconception came about was that neurons only make up 10% of the brain's cells. This contributed to the 10% myth. Like any other organ, the brain is affected by a person's lifestyle, diet, amount of exercise. But using 10% of your brain <laughs> kind of depends on what you're thinking about, number one. And number two, neurons aren't the only cells up there. Neurons aren't the only things that make you think or use your brain. Sadly, still, 70% of Americans believe we only use 10%. No, we don't. It's just that the neurons, that only makes up 10% of the brain cells. We do only use certain percentages of our brain at a time, but those neurons are spread through the whole shebang. It's a misconception. But, obviously, if you look at things like savant syndrome, the amazing things that people could do with their minds, photographic memory, psychic phenomena, which I said, you know, I think we've made it very clear on this show that that is a thing. There are things that the human mind is capable of that the average person has not unlocked. Our brains have ca are capable of way more than we really give it credit for. I think that there are things in the brain that are very, very difficult to unlock that may happen either via accident or the way that they were born. Or you know, Our brains are capable of things that we're not aware of yet. We, we, we still don't 100% know where fucking dreams come from. Yeah. You ask a scientist, where do dreams come from? Why do we dream? You know what the answer is? We don't know. I'm glad that they have the balls to say that now. <laughs> there was a day and age where they would just offer some cockamamie answer just to save some face. But we, we don't know. What I'm getting at is that maybe the phenomena of the premonition it coming true realizing your own death before it happens people from abraham lincoln oh yeah that's a freaky one we'll have to talk about that sometime to even you know, just the average joe having premonitions of their death before it happens lincoln was having weird dreams really weird thoughts he knew down to a couple of hours before that he was going to die he had dreams about how i mean it really fucked with him it haunted him and this is well documented he told mary todd he told his own cabinet a lot of this stuff he was adamant that he was going to die when he did yeah a lot of people are saying well the climate at the time lincoln was not the most popular guy with the uh I'm not going to just lump it in, say, the South. There were fanatics on both sides. But, the, you know, the, the, the Southern fanatics. He was not a popular guy. There were a lot of attempts, you know. It was a rough time. I mean, it was pretty easy to assume that if any president in history were to be assassinated, it would probably be Lincoln. It was just 
It was a time of some massive upheaval and people needed somebody to pin it on. Is that a thing? Well, there are some stories <laughs> that I've heard where premonitions are uh, kind of makes you think. Now, the handprint itself, man, we just, we don't have a lot of evidence there. All we have is a crappy photograph and just a lot of stories. We have hundreds, in fact, thousands of people who saw it over that 20-year span that insisted this thing was not painted, it wasn't this, it wasn't that. Well, it's kind of hard to tell because I found out myself that the only people who were really able to get right up on that handprint were the people that worked at the firehouse. The public who came to visit it when they were able to, this area was roped off at 10 feet. 10 feet. You can't get right up on anything with 10 feet. You can't get close enough to really, you know, to really study this thing. Yes, when it was photographed, they were allowed to kind of climb the rope, you know, and what have you. There was a plaque, strangely. There was this tiny little plaque in the shape of his badge that was placed right at the, um, you know, the ball of the hand. <clears throat> Why would you put a plaque, if this was really a ghostly imprint, if this was truly paranormal, and this was something that happened with one of your fallen brethren, right? Why would you put a plaque that obscures some of it? That's odd to me. That's just weird. Now, I don't want to pin anything on these poor guys. One of their buddies died. You know, this is a firefighter. I need to have some respect. So I'm not going to assume. We don't have any evidence to say that anyway. We can't say that they, oh, they just put it up there as a memorial to him and then just this created a story or there were some guys that kind of snuck in and, and uh, you know, did that and made this apocryphal story that he leaned up against the glass and... I'm not going to put that on them because we can't prove that anyway. It is safe to say that Levy in his uh, kind of depressed, sweaty, clammy, you know, pale looking, queasy state did lean up against that glass. There's enough people saying that it happened. These guys are firefighters. They all said it. Not one had a differing opinion. <clears throat> I think it's reasonable to assume that he really did put his hand on that glass. But what we're trying to figure out here was that did it stay after his death? And was it unable to be removed? Was it the handprint of a ghost? See, that's the thing. That's what makes it weird. It was just a handprint. You can scrub that off. You can clean that off. Maybe, just maybe, one of the firefighters saw this, this handprint, and they're like, oh, man, that's Levy's handprint, man. Don't don't, don't scrub it off. Hey, so-and-so's going to scrub it off the minute he sees it. The janitor's going to clean it or whatever. Let's just make up the story so no one touches it. Is that possible? Yeah. But considering the tra tragic circumstances, I'm not going to pin that on these guys. I'm not, I'm not, that's disrespectful. I think it goes without saying that something like this merits some further study. We almost have nothing. <clears throat> it's an amazing story. Sorry, my throat's a little messed up tonight. It's an amazing story. It's incredible. And this isn't the first instance of somebody after a death leaving some kind of strange, ghostly, quote-unquote, leaving of some kind, some physical manifestation that this person was here. It's very, very weird. I'm seeing photos of the, wow, that was a hell of a fire. Wow. 
Man, that's crazy. Jeez. I know he said he would die that day. He did put his hand on the glass. Man, it's a weird story, but you know, there, uh, we have almost nothing. Pretty unfortunate that April 18th, 1944 was the day that that window got shattered by a paperboy. Damn it, if we only had at least one sliver of that glass, it could be tested, it could be looked at. Even if the results were inconclusive, we would still have more than what we got now. Yeah, this is one of those things where the evidence, the only evidence that we had, like I said, unless AI or something gets to the point where we could input photographs like these and be able to step into the scene somehow, right? And we could really look at this handprint. It's a terrible photo. This is one of the very few instances where every amount of physical evidence that we had was literally shattered into a, <laughs> into oblivion. This one, it's safe to say, may never be solved until the end of time. This is one of those where when I'm up in heaven, it's going to come to me and it's going to come to me pretty quick. I'm going to ask somebody about this handprint. It's still going to be in the back of my mind because it's probably going to be a mystery until that point and beyond. So the handprint of Francis Levy merits further study and then some kind of interested in this premonition thing. I know we're going to stumble upon some later, I don't want to force it. <laughs> I know we're going to see them later. Premonitions. Pretty odd. I never really um, never really thought about that until this one. This is the first uh, episode where we've really tackled something like that. Let's kind of leave that one on the back burner until we talk about some more premonitions. I know they're going to come up. So let's kind of leave that to the side for now. Until we can develop more of a, you know, more of a rounded <laughs> hypothesis on what that might be. Maybe we'll come to some kind of conclusion. Maybe we'll prove it. Maybe we'll debunk it. Who knows? What do you think about the handprint of Francis Levy? Let me know. Did I leave out some crucial piece of evidence that would have blown this whole thing wide apart? Come on, let me know. Go to Asylum817.com. That's Asylum817.com for all things Strange Places related. All the social media links are there, as well as the link to get to our Patreon account, where you can get everything from bonus episodes, ad-free episodes, giveaways of certain tiers, all kinds of stuff. Check it out. Okay. Or if you're one of those cats and wants to go directly to the horse's mouth, it's just Patreon.com slash asylum 817 that's patreon.com slash asylum817. Shout out to the patrons, by the way. The Kunkel Homestead YouTube channel, Donald Haynes, David Peterson. I appreciate all of you guys and all of you listeners as well. Thanks for coming back, and we'll see you next time. And are we ever going to run out of strange places to talk about? I don't think so. Because every town has a strange place, and maybe one day we'll visit yours. This episode was brought to you by KeepOnSharing.com. They're calling themselves the first truly ethical social network. They'll share back 50% of their revenue with their users, but that's just the tip of the iceberg. It's free to register, and they never sell your information. 
You can list your products, events, and content for free. Adult content accounts, be gone. They're fun, positive, and encouraging sites supporting local business. In a day and age where social media sites, even well-established ones, are being brought to light left and right for their questionable and sometimes downright archaic business practices, KeepOnSharing.com is a well-needed breath of fresh air. While you can share personal content, news articles, or just about anything for fun and profit, the marketplace allows practically anyone to sell anything at any time from anywhere. But on this site, you are the boss. I cannot express how amazing it is that KeepOnSharing.com shares 50% of all revenue back with the users on top of having a truly transparent, supportive, and clean business model. Check them out. I'm signing up. Will you? Go ahead and meet me on there. Just go to KeepOnSharing.com. A link will be provided in this episode's description. 